0: Hello and welcome to History Reconsidered, a podcast dedicated to taking a deep dive into historical issues and events and relating them to the modern world. I'm your host Jarrett Stetman and I'm joined by my co-host Samantha Maitra. On this week's episode we'll be talking about the Indian Mutiny of 1857 and we wanted to talk about this because it relates to I think a huge issue of the modern day which is the idea of colonization decolonization what we th- what we should think about that it's become an issue of course in India very famously was a a, a British colony for uh, for well over a century and was the crown jewel of the British Empire uh, but I think there's certainly a lot of discussion today in India and elsewhere about the legacy of this Can you kind of lead us into this topic Samantra, and explain uh, what's going on in India and uh, the, the kind of beginnings of this this rebellion that are so important?
1: Thanks. So we have heard in recent days about um, how the Hindu Nationalist Prime Minister of India, Narendra Modi, um, he's trying to like decolonize, like doing the real work of decolonization that wasn't done post-colonial period. Like there was India, India existed for the last 70 years, but it was still like the structure, the basic structure of India and the governing system and all that was still British. It still is, so to speak, but... Apparently, there is this huge push from both the intellectuals on the right in India, which are uh, uh, primarily uh, Hindu, and uh, the, the governing section to change uh, the constitution, the change, the the military attire, for example, the, the the processes, the penal codes. And even in some cases, like having um, reestablishing old temples which were converted to mosques uh, and they're being reconverted to temples. So it's, it's, it's a long process of decolonization happening and that kind of like brings us back to probably something which I wanted to talk about for a long time. And maybe I'm going to write a book someday about the, one of the most debated topics of history, which is very obviously commonly discussed in Britain and India but not so much known outside those two countries uh, but it's a pivotal moment uh, in the history of humanity because it fundamentally re-established uh, established the the British Empire as the empire the the strongest empire and that which kind of like lasted for over 100 years in various parts of the globe um, but also um it 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 raises a lot of questions about what is national identity like what kind of nationalism do people aspire for was it a civic nationalism or ethnic nationalism or religious you know what what constitutes good or bad nationalism whether there is um uh, uh, you know nationalism which is liberal uh, in its in its idea against more reactionary feudal systems um on the other hand there are like discussions about whether capital has got more power than the than the governing system right i mean that's that's a question that we are facing in this country for a while now like what what decides human destiny um, whether it's it's the crown or the company right it's it's always a question between uh who has more power whether the political masters or the economic masters so i think these all of these questions kind of like can be traced back to 1857, which is an interesting year in 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 history and in Europe, the Crimean War was going on in 1856, uh, between France, Britain on one hand, and Russia on the other. Um, America was having this huge debate between states, um, which culminated in a civil war in a few years, uh, time from then. But also, um, as you mentioned, the British Empire essentially formed in 1858. Before that, it was company rule, um, which was still part of the British Crown, but it was not directly. The Crown wasn't directly responsible, um, you know, over India. So I think that's a very important period.
0: Yeah, that's it's a very interesting topic, and I, I think one that we I'd like to get into. We we kind of touched on this in our in our Opium Wars episode, but the power of the the East India Company, which w- operated almost as a almost like the government, essentially in India, it operated around the world, uh, and. Its power sort of came to an end, especially during this period in in various places. The company essentially rule was kind of transferred uh, from the company to British government. And all the the kind of complications that that created certainly create complications uh, in China. But I I find this very interesting, this idea of rule by a company, essentially. Can you kind of describe what that was like uh, in India? Like, what does it mean to be ruled by the East India Company?
1: So this is the most, this is an interesting topic, because, uh, you know, obviously, if you ask, like, modern historians, they're going to have, like, a lot of uh, ideas about how brutal company rule was. Um, There is, there is obviously a lot of debate about that. And there is a lot of, you know, uh, uh, one, one can disagree with how, you know, only by focusing on the on the brutal part of the company rule, like you know, you kind of like question the very idea that didn't even exist before the French Revolution was like the right of the victors, for example. You know, people didn't really consider foreign rule to be foreign. There used to be wars and you used to have someone coming and ruling over you and the life essentially like continued and, you know, became the same. So it's it's important to give like a a brief description of how society in india was uh, at that point of time and why it's important so india was one of the most richest uh because there was no country as india as such um but but per capita it was one of the most richest you know one of the richest you know uh, areas uh in 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 the world uh like the late mughal empire which was primarily the big hegemon in that in that region so there were like three so if you, see, if you think of the geography of that, of that place, you have the Chinese Empire on top of the Himalayas, which is completely secluded at that point of time. And then underneath, you have the Mughals, which is the major imperial power with its seat in Delhi, currently New Delhi. Um, and then you have the Persians to the west of it. Which is the biggest power, and then you have the Ottomans. So these were the three major powers, and in between them there were like various different other powers. So there were like the Afghans, there were like the Durrani's, um, there were the Marathas in the south, there were the Sikhs, uh, and uh, the Bengalis for you know who were like previous Islamic conquests were like pushed out uh, by the Mughals. So that's how the system was. The Mughal Empire started obviously as a foreign conquest like every other empire started started in that part of the world but eventually they mellowed down and and again i'm like compressing trying to compress like the like 600 years of history into like one paragraph so you know you can understand we can we probably should have like a whole different episode on this one later on but fundamentally what happened is unlike the other conquests that happened before where people used to come to india conquer take money rape, loot, take a whole bunch of money and then move back to their own wherever they were, whether it was in Persia, you know, Nadiusha or, or, you know, all that stuff, um, or or Afghanistan or Tajikistan in Central Asia. um, These people came and settled down. And not just settled down, they started to breed. Um, And then what happened was fundamentally the Hindu kingdoms of India were completely divided at that point of time because... um, it was pagan culture and pagan religion. So they had like different, you know, uh, and other than that, they had economic issues. So the Mughals were the, were the only other power um, other than the Mauryas, which was like during the time of the Greeks, which consolidated the ma- major part of India into one singular political whole. Uh, this is important because after the, funnily enough, the powers which worked so hard to topple the Mughals, Um, during the rebellion, came back to the Mughal Empire and said, like, you need to take the leadership of this thing. Because at that point of time, after 700 years of Mughal rule, they were the only identity the Indians had. But that's something which we're going to discuss later on. So the Mughals married uh, Hindu princesses. Um, There were people, there were still Muslims. Uh, You know, the the Mughal princes were still Muslims. But they they were they were mellowed down their religion was you know, you know the middle part of the Mughal Empire from Akbar the Great to at least Shah Jahan um and even after Shah Jahan to Dara Shikoh was very liberal so they had you know lots of intermarriages their culture was very different the political system was you know very mixed them their military was very the, the, the leadership of the military was joint for example the courtiers were all Hindus in, in the Mughal court in Delhi. Even though the emperor was Muslim, they had ministers who were, who were Hindus. Um, treasury was uh, led by a Hindu, for example, under, under Akbar the Great. So that happened. But because of that liberalization, they also kind of lost their martial sense. And they were so confident of their power at that point of time that other smaller powers started to rise up again on, on the periphery of the empire so in the south the marathas which was a hindu kingdom started to you know consolidate in the east the bengalis started to consolidate uh, as a political power in the north the sikhs started to consolidate as a political power so they were like there was there was this constant bites and biting of chunks out of the imperial power it's sort of like the you know the roman empire like they they were huge overspread mellowed down uh, you know the the late mughal empire was like ruled by weak weak emperors so they didn't really have the, you know it's, it's the same story in every empire and that's what happened and at that point of time the most interesting thing happened in history a european company came and got trading rights in various parts of india and up until that point of time capital in india was never corporate. So, capital in India was always individual, um, like most of the part of the globe. Like there were rich men who used to, you know, who were landlords, or there were rich businessmen, for example, in various parts of India used to do trade. But the entire corporate system of a board of governors, of of you know, of 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 a you know structure and rule by statute was first. The people haven't seen that in in that part of the world. It was brought by uh, a British company. Uh, not just the British company, there were other you know, East India companies. There were the Dutch East India Company, the French East India Company. Um, but the British came and initially company came and they understood that you know, there were this local fractions who were opposed to the Mughal rule. So the classic, you know, British divide and rule, balance of power, it was like it was instinctive in British blood. So that started. And obviously, because you know, people. Hated the Mughals so much because you know they were they were living under the Mughal rule for seven hundred years, even though they had no idea, like you know that what what might come after. But it, it's it's instinctive. It's there were there was this anti incumbency factor in in, in in the Mughals, so they started to side with the British, and they they saw. Foreign technology which they never saw before, you know they saw military power which they never saw before industrial you know revolution changed garments and structures and and you know that kind of stuff they were getting more money from the British for selling their stuff than they could have had on the Mughals who couldn't even control the bandits for example, the tuggies you know in the trade routes the British provided that sense of order in various parts of the parts of the globe but overall the company. Became a powerful force, tried to conquer parts of the globe. Got beaten back um, by the by the late Mughals. Even then, they were like massively powerful, so they beat back the company. So they kind of like settled down for a hundred years after that, where they didn't try to conquer anywhere. After that, in 1757, by that time, the entirety of India was like fragmented. There were all these various powers which were trying to like take power away from the Mughals. They succeeded. They had their satrapies. They had their small kingdoms in various parts of the world, uh, various parts of that of, of, of the region. and then the Brits made their big ploy in conquering Bengal, which again happened in a like in a fluke. Uh, the British were not supposed to win that war. They had 300 European soldiers, but the other side was divided by in infighting, and the technology was bad and they had you know, their, their strategy was bad. And it rained the day before, so the British had technology, like simple technology, which was because of the Industrial Revolution, their tarpaulin packs, so they could cover their gunpowder, which the other side couldn't. So their gunpowder was, you know, uh, soggy, and they couldn't light up their cannons, and their cavalry charge was like tore through by British cannonade um, under Clive. And that's how Britain formed company rule in the eastern parts of the, parts, parts of the, of the country. Calcutta was the capital. And that's you know that that was the first example, and probably in the future, like it's it's a debate that we are having now. Is like how do we visualize Wagner, for example, of of Russia, or or Eric Prince's you know uh, company, and how would we see the future company rules that might come? Like there there are talks of a trillionaire uh, who might be the world's first trillionaire in in human history you know what happens when he buys a company forms an army and takes over parts of africa for example so those are all the things that which are historical but something kind of like a shadow of what we have seen before in the british rule it was a corporate structure extremely efficient ruled by decree had a had, a, had statutes you know people were all equal again something that indians never saw before um and They were military capable so it was it was like libertarian dream for example like company rule in (laughs) in a way (laughs) it's very interesting because i mean
0: you know many might ask you know how on earth do a few thousand people seemingly rule over 250 million i mean it seems beyond belief i mean think the the question is why didn't they just all gather together and overthrow their overlords i think that the answer to a certain extent is they didn't necessarily see it that way and also in they were. This is how, kind of how things were done. I mean, a lot of a nations' kingdoms are ruled by a small uh, ruling elite. I would actually compare the situation that took place in India very much uh, to what happened in the Americas after the arrival of, of the Spanish, after Hernan Cortez came to the Americas. One wonders, you know, how does Hernan Cortez, the small uh, group of 500 Spanish uh, soldiers, uh, conquer the Aztec Empire? Well, the, the reality is a lot of the other uh, outlying people, they didn't particularly like the Aztecs. They had many historical reasons to deeply dislike them. It was very easy for a group of Europeans from a far off place to uh, join together with many local individual powers who had reasons not to like the, the imperial power in charge and it toppled that. And they saw uh, benefits by being having the Spanish at the top of that pyramid rather than the Aztecs. And it seems like it was a similar situation in what we call today India, where there isn't some kind of united nation. It's not like a single unified group of people who all call themselves Indians and all have a certain way of living. They were divided by religion, by locality, by uh, by point of view, and so many other ways. So to even look at it like, well, 250 people ruled by a few hundred doesn't really take into consideration just how different those people were, those 250 million. And so it really makes sense that uh, a country like uh, – like the British Empire could step in, especially with a, a highly functional system of, of law and governance, a, a, a wealthy system that created wealth, not just in, in their own country, but in the colonies that they touch. And I can understand how this system would be highly appealing to those uh, living in, in a far off place. I mean, it must have been such a strange experience having these people from, 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 from England show up in a, in a place like India, uh, no contact between the civilizations before, suddenly thrown into contact uh but drastically changing the world that those people understood at that time and of course thrown into that you have on top of that the layers of conflict between the european powers that show up with their own kind of versions of that colonization as you mentioned uh with with the french and the dutch um can you can you kind of talk through i think what's what's really important in this is the kind of conflicts leading into the 19th century i think that that is really where things start to I mean, where, where British rule is really becoming solidified in India, it's it's identified with being a large part of the maybe the crown jewel of the British Empire. Um, can you kind of talk about kind of the lead up you know, to the, the main topic of the evening, which is uh, the, the eventual mutiny of 1857, you know, its relation to modern nationalist movements? Can you kind of talk about the lead up in those years uh, just before tensions really started to break out?
1: Yeah, I think you raised the the, the the thing that bothers me so much about the post-colonial idea of, of, of the Europeans just came and colonized everywhere, you know, and that it's, it's just a very simple, you know, question of oppression of, you know, oh, these people came and they took everything from us. That is just simply not true. You know, the colonialism is such a complicated phenomenon that happened for such a long period of time with so many different factors imbibed in it. just... I mean, forget about the rest of the world. Just if if we just concentrate on India, first of all, you're absolutely right. There was no such thing as Indian national identity. There were not. You know, there were Maharashtrians, Marathas, there were Mughals and Muslims, and there were Hindus and Bengalis and Sikhs and Punjabis and, and different parts of the world. They 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 thought of themselves, Bengalis thought of themselves as Bengalis first. There was no idea of India per se. Yes, you know, historically. You know the part of Russia and all that. You know Vedic idea of of the, of the landmass being like the majority of Hindu, but but that those are you know it's the same idea of 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 like a mythical Greek, for example, right? I mean, it's 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 yes, it's true, but also a bit more complicated than that. But more importantly, uh, questions of modernity cannot be answered without the economic angle to it. If you the 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 biggest thing that happened in in that time was. The bifurcation of uh, an elite, which was essentially toppled by a counter elite, with the help of the Brits. So the British people, people used people usually think that the British came and became the elite of of that of that place. That's not strictly true. The yes, the Brits changed a bunch of stuff. They incorporated penal code and modern, you know, judicial system and all that kind of stuff. But overall, they didn't really touch the social structure of the country. Um, what happened was an internal displacement of the ruling elite of the country or of the, of, of the region. I, I, I hesitate to say country because there was no idea of the country at that point of time. But the ruling elite of the region was displaced by another internal ruling elite. So, for example, um, if you read the history of India at that point of time, there was one, the the Muslim political elite, which was highly educated, very liberal. Uh, again, I, I'm not, I mean, yes, there were extreme acts of brutality by Muslim conquerors and you know, Muslim rulers in India. And that continued up until the end of days. Aurangzeb was one of the last Mughal empires. And it was absolutely ridiculously brutal, like almost comically brutal. Um, but, but overall, when we talk about the elite system, like the, the court poetry was Persian. There was beautiful literature coming out of the Muslim courts. There was uh, clothes, muslin, which was like, you know, designed and decorated. There were architecture, which is beautiful. Um, you know, the, so the, the Muslim power, the political elite of that country was very polished, very civilized. It's kind of like a late Ottoman, you know, they were like very much, you know, very elaborate in their in their mannerisms and, and, and literature and talks. And then you have this latent Hindu elite, which was always already there, and they were the original, you know, native Indians. For example, they had massive amount of money uh, because the the business class was very Hindu. Uh, you know, the the you know the traders and the businessmen were all you know North Indian Hindus. Um, intellectually, you know, they were a very strong, powerful force. All the Brahmins, for example, were the more most literate you know, people in, in, in that region. And not just like literature in the sense like, you know, hymn chanting, but they were genuinely knowledgeable about medicine, for example, right? So they had, so there was this, you know, bifurcation of, of the Indian elites between the, the ruling Muslim elites in majority of the India and the Hindu underclass, but also within that underclass, uh, an elite which has pretty solid consolidated amount of power. And then you have the British come in, And then some of the Hindu elites, which see, for example, religious taxes imposed on them by the Muslim elites, they think, hang on a minute, these guys are coming from outside and they're very liberal, right? So we are going to use them to kind of like consolidate our power. So essentially in the Battle of Plassey, for example, the Muslim Nawab, who had the the big army, was about to face the tiny British garrison, but the British garrison was fundamentally held by Hindu businessmen. People don't talk about those things anymore because, you know, obviously now it's like just a simple, simpleton idea of binary oppressor and oppressed, but that's not the case. Um, But on the other hand, also, even within the Hindu elite, there was this system where the more moderate and Westernized uh, Hindus were actually kind of seeing the dark sides of their own, own system. For example, uh, widows couldn't remarry right so it, the people who were on the forefront of that fight again widows you know having uh, rights as as the men folks of their of the society were essentially western educated hindu brahmins like who are very highly literate very knowledgeable a lot of you know monetary power uh, and they were the ones you know they were the more liberal ones so for example there is this beautiful paragraph in a letter uh, by Raja Ramon Roy, who was a, who was a ruler in, in the eastern parts of India at that point of time, who was writing a letter to Lord Amherst. So the funny thing about the Brits were like, they said, fine, we're just going to come and let the schools continue as, as it is. We're not going to impose a system of education on them. And then there's this Hindu king who's writing a letter to Lord Amherst, starting by saying, your lordship, as a foreign ruler who you, who you have no idea of how the society is run in this parts of the world so it is my duty and privilege to help you understand so that you change all the things we don't want to study sanskrit we want science colleges this is this is from a hindu king you know it's it's absolutely fascinating there are letters of that in the victoria memorial museum you know where where you can read the the archival evidence of educated hindus asking the british to reform and transform the society, and that continued under company rule. For example, for almost a hundred years, but from 1757 to 1857, in between there were obviously the French and British conflicts. Different sides were supporting different sides. You know, and everything in British history has been decided by their opposition to the French. So even when they went on a conquest binge, it was not because they wanted to have acquired more. Power or more, you know, place. And you're right. There were like 400 people ruling a massive society, and that was with the help and support of the you know underclass who who wanted them to be there. Um, but overall, that continued for a year, for almost 100 years up until 1857, and that's the pivotal year where things changed.
0: Yeah, it, it, it's that's that's it's that's so interesting. And uh, you know, this this there, I think there was a lot of tension in in British rule is you know, how much of a stamp do they put on from British society on to broader Indian society? I mean, I, and I think there was a lot of tension. I mean, I think that the idea of ruling uh, people who had vastly different views, I think there were many who simply wanted the people to essentially have a, a certain amount of local self-rule. I think that is the kind of the the kind of attitude uh, that I think especially after what happened in 1857 uh, became even more common, this idea that, well, bringing in some of this this modernization, alongside the the economic development because as you said earlier there was a huge amount of economic change that happened uh within india that was brought along by 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 british rule by having the 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 capital that was introduced the you know it was kind of like one of those situations like uh like a monty python sketch sketch you know you know what did the british ever do for us well they brought infrastructure they brought roads they brought uh you know modern medicine and, and education all these other things that uh, we're certainly becoming a part of the West. We're certainly booming in the West. They were bringing uh, to this new people. But there was, of course, that tension between what they were modernizing and, of course, the the culture ways of the people who they they tried to rule. And uh, it seems like and maybe now you can talk about the, the actual rebellion that took place in 1857 that sort of culminated in this sort of opposition to the kind of Emergent Christianity uh, in India and some of the modernization that was taking place. Can you kind of take us through the the early stages and the, the of this rebellion?
1: Yeah, I mean, before I go there, I just I just want to point out to something which you which you just said, which is an eternal debate about uh, infrastructure building in in earning society, you know, and people say like the, the Indians, for example, would say, Oh, the Brits made railways because they could travel, you know they could ferry their troops it it was essentially to support British trade, and you know it wasn't for us, like they built r- roads and railways, yeah, true, but also that was benefiting Britain, and the British would say like, no, we did it because we wanted to you know uh, develop the the society which was there, which was backward. The answer is neither. It, there was no plan in, in you know, there was no grand plan on any side that, you know, there was no 100 years of, you know, oh, we're going to start in 1757. We're going to end at 1857 in like this part, this amount of railroads. Like and no one had that foresight to see what would happen in 100 years time. It, it happened organically, as it has happened in the entirety of the human history. When the Romans built roads in Syria, which was far, far away from Italy. They didn't do because they wanted to either develop Syria or the Syrians were like, you know, uh, oh, fine, the Romans were doing it because they wanted to, you know, ferry their troops. No, it happened organically. That's just how empires work. That's how empires worked. has, you know, imperial system has, you know, worked throughout history. The interesting part of Britain was most of the people who were, Essentially, liberals and progressives were also Christian missionaries and Calvinists. And, you know, um, some of the street names and marketplaces that you go, they were all Scottish, by the way. Again, this is another irony that we need to address someday in some other episode about how Scotland says they are victims of colonialism. But fundamentally, they were the ones who were running the empire. Um, from both the Christian missionaries to people who are like, you go to Calcutta, the place which is called New Market now, it's, fun, its original name was Stuart Hog Market. Who was Stuart Hogg? He was a Scottish guy. You know, same with David Livingston in, in Africa. But anyway, it's a separate story. The, 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 the people who actually opposed tinkling with Indian society too much and said that, fine, if they want to burn their widows, let them, were the conservatives in Britain, because they were like, you know, we don't need to care about that as well as we are getting money. Fine. We don't need to, you know, change Indian society. It was the progressives. It was the liberals. It was the Christian missionaries who were like, no, hang on a minute. We 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 can't allow just like someone, you know, James Napier, when he was walking in India, they were like, he was confronted by a bunch of people. It's like, we, it's our custom to burn widows and you have to allow that and Napier said it's your custom to burn widows and it's our custom to you know make a gallow and hang you so you can follow your custom and we're going to follow ours and that, that this is essentially how social change happened in India you know by 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 guns, you know and it's, and with the support of local you know liberals who are like ram Monroe was like, no, we don't need we don't need to go back to those days you know of a feudal system. we need modern society we need trade, we need industry, we need you know, uh, all this kind of thing. So 1857, volatile year, Britain focused in the European theater with the massive Russian threat. People, again, people forget that Russia was throughout history, one of the biggest power in Europe. It still is. But I mean, post-Napoleon, it wasn't just Britain. You know, Britain was focused on the empire throughout, you know, seaborne trade and all that. But it was Russia, which was the hulking you know, land hegemon, which has always been there, trying to focus on Afghanistan or Persia or India. And that was the you know, British worry. Not the French, decimated. It was Russians. Uh, the great game in Afghanistan and all that. So Britain focused in 1856, Russia. In the meantime, a couple of things happened in India. One, uh, because the Mughal Empire was so decimated... And as we talked about the two different set of elites in India, the political elite and the and the financial elite, the political elite was on both sides, whether there was the Hindu Brahmins or, you know, the upper caste in the Hindu society or or the Muslims, they were like, you know, this can't continue. We, we don't have any power anymore. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the financial elites are fine. They are supported by the Brits. The Brits are not, you know, they're, they're tolerating that because, you know, they're, they're traders and they're getting businesses and they're, you know, exporting and importing and they're having a great life. The literary ed- elites are fine, you know, they are happy with their social reforms, but the the only elite people who are losing power under Britain are the political elites who used to actually rule the country in various parts. So there was this huge discontent on both between both the Hindus and the Muslim populations in those days. Military, for example, in the East India Company in Bengal, under the Bengal presidency, was segregated. Um, because you know, lower castes weren't allowed to even sit with the upper caste Hindus, much less go to war side by side. You know, you, you, if you cannot touch me, how can you be in a foxhole with me? Right? I mean, that, that's, the, that's, <laughs> the, that's the, that's the, that's the weird kind of thing. And that's just the Hindus. Like, obviously, there were like other dynamics between the Sikhs and the Muslims, yada, yada. So that's, so there was this huge discontent in, um, within the elite system. The second was, um, the financial elites were happy because the, Britain, the British system was like transforming the society to a more modern society. And the proximal cause of this conflict was uh, a gun. So the Enfield rifle, which was introduced for the British army, for the presidential armies in Bombay, Madras, uh, at that point in time, Madras, now it's Chennai and Calcutta, uh, had grease in the cartridges. No one actually knew what the, that grease was. The Hindus thought it's made from beef, which is forbidden. Uh, the Muslims thought it was made from pork, which is forbidden. So, so the soldiers had to buy that grease. And there was this huge controversy that spread throughout the presidential army that this was a deliberate idea by the Brits. So that like, you know, the, both the upper caste Hindus and the upper caste Muslims, the political elites are going to be like, we're not going to use the guns. And they're going to give the guns to lower caste and they're going to take over. So that was the fundamental conspiracy. Uh, it actually started in a street fight. So there was this guy who was drunk in, in Calcutta, or well, nearby Calcutta. And he, he was from an upper-caste you know, Hindu soldier who got into a fight with a, with a lower-caste trader somewhere. And, and the lower-caste guy was like, you don't have a caste anymore because you're biting, you're chewing that cartridge. So that's <laughs> so for all the you know political discontent it fundamentally started with a street fight like it, it's the it's the most baffling you know thing that happened in in the mutiny. So yeah, it started it, yeah sorry go on.
0: Yeah it's it's interesting cuz i mean you you talked about how the, the the military was kind of segregated and and i i guess what's true is the british they basically were arming and uh, supplying these various groups who were fighting not just locally, but I think wasn't there a lot of concern that they would be deployed overseas too and that that would further upset the kind of caste system that they had? I mean, it wasn't that part of the, a huge part of their concern?
1: That's right. Um, the Muslims, by the way, didn't have that problem because their religion doesn't forbid them to, to cross... Uh what they used to call Kalapani, which is like black waters like the sea waters like it's fine to go from one part of the of the land to the other but for the Hindus but you know some of the Hindu castes you know because Hinduism is not like a you know unanimous religion there it's a pagan religion so there are like different gods and different segments and different sections of that but part of that part of that you know society was you know they, they were opposed to to be in a ship. Because they thought, you know, they're going to cross water and then they won't be able to come back, and that's that's the end of their. Because they have to be cremated in the land which is nearby where they were born, so that was there obviously. But but essentially, the biggest issue that was there, proximal cause was obviously the guns, but the underlying cause was a lack of identity, and that was that's the most interesting thing, which neither the Hindu majoritarians uh, would will, will talk today or uh, or the Muslim elites in Pakistan will talk. But what happened is, because there was no identity of Indians at that point of time, the only identity, the only banner under which everyone could fall through in their muscle memory was the Mughals. The same power that everyone for 300 years tried to tear through. So think of it this way. Imagine Europe in the late Roman period, right? They're like Visigoths and, you know, barbarians and everyone trying to tear them through. And then there's this massive foreign power which comes on top of them and say, like, we're not going to do anything. We're just going to, you know, help you do trade. And then there's this internal revolt. And the Visigoths and all these people who were tearing the Roman Empire say like, we don't have any identity. European identity is essentially Roman. So we're just going to prop up a Roman king and, you know, fight under his banner. So that's essentially what happened. I mean that's
0: sort of that is a bit of what happened in Europe, where a lot of the kind of breakaway nations that tore apart the Roman Empire yeah. pick up the mantle almost of the Roman Empire. They take up the and I mean some of the physical, literal physical elements of the Roman Empire that are left behind, uh, but yeah. picking up the the names, the customs, even though as peoples they were just you know the barbaric pe- peoples on the fringes, they actually pick up the mantle and see that as a unifying identity, and so it, it makes sense that that was simply replicated. Uh, in India, a similar situation where you have a powerful empire that's lasted for longer than anybody can possibly remember, uh, that that fades away, and there's suddenly a, a fondness for the, for the empire that so many wish to tear apart at one point. Uh, a reminder of you know when 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 we were great, when when things were good, and so it makes sense actually, especially in a time of conflicting identities, that that would be sort of rebooted and restarted, especially with all the the of course the entrance from outside of other groups that are so far outside of, I think their, their civilizational knowledge and, and fra- framework.
1: That's, that's absolutely. I mean, that's, I, I think that's the, probably the most perfect um, example of how, you know, similar instincts play out in different parts of the world. So, in, in Europe, for example, everyone wanted to be the Roman Kaiser, right? I mean, Caesar, like, you know, the, the German Kaiser, for example, the, the Russian Tsar, or even like the Ottoman Kaiser of Rome. Like they, I mean, ev- everyone's idea of unity was the Roman banner, you know, the legions and, you know, the structure and the laws and the roads. Likewise, you're, you're exactly right. The Mughal Empire ruled India for such a long time. Like, you know, the the, the the instinctive muscle memory of of people there were like, okay, so that was actually a really good time, you know, there were, I mean, during the late, you know, Mughal period, there were like lots of harmony, people were like intermarrying each other, like the courts were like, we, we had food, you know, no one was like treating us like as a secondary citizen. Um, uh, the the they they remember the Roman flag. They remember the, the sorry, the Mughal flag. You know the 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 power of the of the Mughal Empire. Like they can, they 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 have conquered this entire massive landmass from the coast from the borders of Persia, like modern day Iran, to almost you know Burma and Thailand. It's 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 unthinkable how big that empire was, and you know, and and they've they've got various different languages, but also. Uh, they have the exact same culture and the same laws. You know, the, the system of, you know, jagirdars, for example, the feudal system, which was established by the Romans, that, that you can go to some parts of Bengal and you'd see the exact same thing and you can go to somewhere in, in Kashmir or somewhere in the north or somewhere in the south and you see the exact same, you know, social structure and, and political structure. So that's that was the nostalgia which was there in in, in the minds in of, of people who are like, this actually was a system which really, it wasn't perfect, obviously. No yeah, and- to me, but but they, they their muscle memory was like, we need to go back and prop up that guy and And during
0: the rebellion, I believe, didn't they they basically pick out one of the the kind of uh, ruling members of the old Mughal empire essentially to be the the new emperor of this uh, whatever this breakaway state would be, Isn't that what happened during the war?
1: So that's the most interesting part of the of the of the mutiny like I call it a mutiny because it it's it, it didn't really take the character of a rebellion up until like the very last moments before they had like a national you know identity um so <laughs> it started in Bengal with a street fight you know the bengal uh, presidency army rebelled and they were like fine we're we're not gonna we're just gonna kill our British officers and uh, again the Sepoys were extremely brutal like we we tend to forget, like, oh, you know, it was a revolutionary war, and all it wasn't. Uh, but it was, it was fundamentally uh, 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 both sides were just like, the amount of brutality that Indian, you know, rebellion saw is unthinkable. People were torn, like, put put in front of the cannons and blown away as as punishment. So it was on both sides. Like, there were like European women who were like put in in a dungeon and just like they suffocated to death. So the brutality was extreme on both sides. Anyway, so it started in Bengal. And then, and then when that news spread because of telegraphs and newspapers of technology, again installed by the Brits, that news spread throughout India, and then you had the Hindu kingdoms of Western Marathas under you know Nana Sahib and Tatyatopi and all those people. You have the Chasi, the Central Indian kingdoms, uh, who were you know uh, ruled by the the, the queen Laxmibai, who was a you know formidable you know woman. Queen who went and died in battle. You have the Bengal army, which was primarily upper caste Hindus and Muslim leaders, and then you have Muslim rulers up north. All of them simultaneously march towards Delhi, because at that point of time, no one knows who's going to be uh, in charge. But their mind, you know, in their memory, in their muscle memory, it's like anyone who occupies that red fort, that seat in Delhi is the national ruler. So that's like that's that's the that's the same thing in Europe. Like you have to be in Rome. Like all roads are leading to Rome. Everything leads to Delhi. Like you have to be there. You have to take. De- and they go there. And at that point of time, it's it's, it's very tragic. If you visit Delhi, if you visit the Red Fort, they have this beautiful evening uh, uh, show where where you they, they show how this once formidable empire, the Mughals and the princesses are like crying and they can't feed and they can't eat. And, and someone is fighting outside the castle and they come and say like, we need the king's justice, the emperor's justice. And the emperor is like, I don't have any writ outside my castle. I can't go and you know, I don't have the power. It it's it's ridiculously tragic. Um, but <laughs> but then all of these forces come to Delhi and they prop up this old 80-year-old guy who can't even see properly or hear properly. I was like, you know, you have the bloodline of the Mughals, you are our empire, you don't have to do anything, we are your forces. So they they literally like formed the power that they tore down for 300 years and said this is our empire we need to re-establish the system where we have a muslim emperor with hindu lords under fighting under him and that where that was when the rebellion became a rebellion fundamentally and they had this national identity so in a way it's interesting to say that yes that kind of propelled these people to have this singular identity. But then the second question that automatically comes after that is like, that's not the Indian identity they formed, but that was the muscle memory of the Mughal empire. So they wanted to go back to the Mughal empire.
0: Yeah. Funny. Eight, yeah. 80 year old guy, uh, maybe high on opiates who can't really see, uh, they try to put him in charge and, uh, and to lead this rebellion. I think it's very, very interesting. Um, so the question is, you know, obviously all these forces are in play now. It's there's a there's a, there's various groups of soldiers who, who knows who they're actually loyal to. Loyal to some of them are basically just in getting involved in street fights, essentially. Uh, and so you have essentially a country that's now boiling over into chaos. How do the British regain control of the situation? Again, a country at the, at the country I say country, but a region that has two hundred million people plus. Uh, how do they get control of the situation that appears to be devolving into some kind of anarchy?
1: So that's the interesting thing which post-colonial scholars will never reply is majority of the India did not rise up to support the Mughals, the, the rebellion. You know, One of the reasons the rebellion failed was not because the British were superior in arms or or manpower, because they didn't. They literally did not. They were like one uh, 25th or something, you know, European soldiers who were, who, were, who were before every, you know, 600 people, there were like one European guy or something of that sort. It was, it, was, it was very, very inferior force. But one, the at that point of time, the last 100 years of company rule has changed the social character of India. So you have this entire generations of Indians who were Western educated at that point of time. Right, so they have modern science, the you know 19th century science, modern literature. They were reading Lord Byron in India, you know. So modern literature, modern science, the social ideas of equality uh, between Hindus and Muslims was there, uh, between women and men. You know that that, that that the idea that it's 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 barbaric to you know burn widows um, was started by people who are Western educated Indians, right? So, they didn't want to go back to the dark days of the feudal rule. So, even though, so the appeal of even though, yes, we are, you know, reestablish the Mughal Empire essentially, which is what the rebels tried to do um, for their own benefit, but nonetheless, that was the symbolic effort is to reestablish the central power of India, the Mughals. Um, the majority of the people who were like Western educated didn't want to go back to those days. So, they didn't support the rebellion. So, there was no intellectual firepower. So, Every rebellion needs people who are good writers, who are good intellects. You know the James Madisons, for example. There was no such thing in India at that point of time because the more the educated intelligentsia was on the side of the British. You know they were like, I, I don't want to go back to the days of widow burning. I don't want to go back to the days of you know religious taxes and discrimination and segregation and all that. I want to live in this time with my son going to the to study. You know and be a barrister in London. So the educated class of India was. Thoroughly westernized. Second, the entire south of India from central to down to the to to the Indian Ocean, the entire north, um from the Nepal and all those you know powers, the West, the sixth, Punjab, none of these powers were in the rebellion. The rebellion was consolidated in Bengal, Central India, and parts of Western India. They marched. Because the logistical lines were so stretched and thin and they didn't have the money and the financial backing of the traders because the traders were like enjoying British order. So they were like, you know, the first thing was the British did after coming to power was kill off the Tuggies who were like, you know, this marauding, you know, uh, robbers and, you know, bandits in, in, the, in, the, in, in the roads who used to kill people and rob them. The traders were like, you know what? British soldiers are providing us with order, so we are going to give money to these people so that they can keep on providing order. At the end of the day, people don't realize that the idea of rebellion doesn't really appeal if it's not coming with a sense of order. The Indian rebellion was chaotic. Um, it was barbaric. You know, the 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 sepoys in in there were there were extreme brutality. Uh, meted out to Europeans in in parts of northern and central India. Now that doesn't justify the British brutality that happened afterwards, but that also kind of does. Like it was a chain reaction; it was a cyclical, you know, effort. Like the British were equally brutal, by the way. Like I mentioned, like they were like putting Indians in front of the cannons and like just blasting them for you know just for the show, to the, like a show of power. But nevertheless, there was the only you know power which provided order at that point of time was the British, not the rebels. So fundamentally, there was no appeal when it comes to social order to the people. There was no intellectual appeal, obviously. The educated people, as, as I mentioned, uh, were on the side of the British. And manpower, The Britain didn't need the manpower that it, you know, to. You know, they couldn't have. If, if it was like a genuine Indian rebellion, then the Brit- the British troops didn't stand a chance. Like, they would have suffered the same fate that they suffered in America when the entire population rises up. In, in in revolution, it's very difficult to have to have a sea power, like a seaborne power to come and, you know, pummel the sides and, you know, bombard the ports and control, you know, the landmass, which is inside, which is that big. Like India is almost like one third of of, of, of United States. It's a big country. um But then but Indians didn't rise up in rebellion because majority of the Indians were like, we're actually kind of fine. You know, (laughs) this is this is fine. So we you know, so so fundamentally what the British could do is segregate the several powers which were coming from West and coming from center and then individually, you know, cut them off. So Havelock and Outram and all the great British generals in those days, they consolidated in Kanpur in North India and then they went to Jhansi in central India. And then finally they cut off the western parts because which was next to the sea and they had a huge amount of power. Bengal presidency was just the presidential army of Bengal was dissolved.
0: Um
1: there there, which is very interesting and kind of tragic that one of the most oldest regiments and of, of the Indian army is no longer there because it was the most powerful army and it was the one that started the rebellion, the Bengalis. And then it was dissolved because the Britain didn't want to have like that kind of, you know. Uh, system in place so there are like Bengal engineers and all that kind of stuff now in the modern Indian army but there is no Bengal regiment anymore Uh, there is the Maratha regiment, the Rajput regiments, but no Bengal regiment anymore in the Indian army because that was when that was dissolved
0: Interesting, it's almost like uh, the 7th Cavalry in the the US after the the destruction of Custer Um, I I find that very interesting Um,
1: There are so so many parallels to America, it's just unthinkable It is It's unthinkable
0: And I think a lot of Americans don't really understand that. I think they don't know a lot of this history, which I think has been excellent about about you discussing this in general. So, so talk about what kind of the aftermath was It's Like, what what changed in you know, following? You know, the, okay, so the rebellion is is put down by by the authorities. The British kind of regain control and sort of change some of their policies in dealing with India, which makes sense. Obviously, there was this massive catastrophe. I mean, they almost lost. Uh, which was a significant part of the empire uh, and a puff of smoke. Obviously they made some changes into how they, they ruled in the region and how they, they operated. Can you, can you kind of talk through that?
1: Yeah. I mean, militarily, you're absolutely right. It, it was one of the toughest wars in the history of the British empire. Like uh, the amount of effort it took for Britain to regain control of, of it, 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 the The official war was over in a year in 1858, but it continued up until like almost 1860, um, which is around the time when civil war kind of like was beginning to start in in the US. Which it's again, it's it's just fascinating how the you know forces of modernity and technology changed uh, battlefields. But anyway, um, but the uh, it shook the foundation of the of the of the empire of of you know of. Before that, you know, it was ruled by a system of governor generals and, you know, the company ruled where there were like, the, you know, different. The, so there was this Bengal presidency and there was the Madras presidency and Bombay presidency and the three kind of like on three sides of India and they used to have like control over themselves, you know, through telegraph and railways. And then you have this, this, um, uh smaller kingdoms which are like under the sovereignty of the under the suzerainty of the of the British company uh, which provides order but at that point of time London realized that that is not sustainable anymore um, for two reasons one the they had to um privilege those people who sided with them in the rebellion so in the minds of you know, the elite in London, it was like, you know, we couldn't have won this war without a section of the privileged Indian liberals, for example, or, or you know, the, the educated uh, businessmen and kingdoms and all these people. So at that point of time, what Britain did was change the governing structure of India. So, for example, um, the Indian Penal Code was established in 1860 um three years you know after the mutiny which is uh, which for the first time since the mughals there was this consolidated rule of law and the courts and systems indians never saw before warren hastings like this you know governor general is tried in the court of law for mistreating you know indians never had any idea that elites can treat elites that way in a court of law like in in the indian mindset at that point of time if you're an elite you're, you're above the law, right? Yeah. Unless you go to war, and in which case, via victus, like, you know, it's, it's victus justice. Um, but the fact that there could be like a civilized system of law where you can actually bring down one of your own because nominally he mistreated someone under him or because of corruption is something which is unthinkable. Like the Indian Western educated liberals were like, this is a great system. You know, we, we should adopt it. It's and something that I know reading yeah.
0: from. Edmund Burke, of course, who railed on against Hastings. I think Americans kind of remember yes. him uh, as, as the great champion of American liberty, but they forget about how he was a champion to a certain extent of liberty in, in, in India as well because yeah. he went after a corrupt official. You know, again, as you said, it's something that's so unheard of in many societies in which a member of the elite can be essentially cast out for for doing individual injustices. That's right. Um, you know, and this is it's unfathomable, it's, you know, as we... Kind of touched on in our in our Opium Wars episode. I mean, yep, a lot yep. of justice is doled out in, in within community. There's no sense of individual justice in the sense, but this is a very Western uh, trait that, of course, the British Empire and British society had uh, more generally. So, undoubtedly, shook up a system where you could say, "Hey, look, you can criticize those who are in charge or in power. You can say that there's a, a universal standard of justice that." from the lowest to the highest, all will be held accountable to. Uh, that's that's a transformative set of ideas. I think it's taken as absolutely. natural in the West, but is not common uh, globally. And I think it's something the British Empire certainly ushered into the region.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, this is... The, the fundamental debate about colonialism is why was colonialism so successful, given that Europe didn't really have the manpower to rule the world. It's because... This, it, it was through consent. It was through consent of the governed. The people, as Ed, in Edmund Burke's work, by the way, like, you know, the people who are being ruled consent to being ruled because they see the, the alternative as inferior, the alternative system as inferior. So a lot of things changed. Obviously, the company was dissolved. It was taken over by the crown. Um, governor generals went away and Viceroy's, you know, came uh, to rule. Uh, In their place. But most importantly, society became a lot more equal um, after the Raj came. Like the 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 colonial exploitation that is, you know, associated with Britain, with the with the East India Company and with, with the you know cutthroat competition and all that kind of stuff went away. Magistrates, doctors, army leaders, you know, lawyers, barristers, they were all Indians at that point of time so the british instituted this system of educating this entire mass of country and having this massive bureaucracy which by the way then became the backbone of the empire from fiji to uganda to the caribbeans you know you, you the, it was the british who exported this massive mass of people who are heavily educated extremely powerful with lots of money to be the governing system in places where there literally wasn't much civilization, you know, Uganda was, you know, even now, like, you know, majority of the Ugandan doctors, for example, are Indians, you know, uh, and that's a legacy of Britain. Like that is the reason why the mutiny so transformative for the globe is because it initiated a system through which the imperial backbone was essentially consolidated, In India and then that spread across the world so when people talk about the British manpower they talk about the production in India or the the trades or the or the military which fought in Italy and Germany and various parts of North Africa but that wasn't the, the 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 crown jewel was not that the crown jewel was the educated intelligent people Indians exported brain they have throughout history done that kind of like doing that now either you know as well in a way which is kind of funny we I mean, there there's this this idea of you know the someone who's a techie you know is going to be an indian because you know that's just how uh you know society has <laughs> developed but but it but fundamentally it, it is kind of the same like i mean they it wasn't an empire ruled by one single individual or ethnicity it was kind of like a collaborative effort where you have people who are just just hugely educated in various parts of the globe running a system which they probably never have seen on their own you know so i think that was the biggest change that happened and obviously at that point of time after the american civil war britain got overstretched you know one of the big good things about the crown taking over is the crown taking over with all the law and all the good things that come with it but also Before that, the crown could lead on to the companies to do stuff on their on their behalf. But at that point of time, the crown became the behemoth, the the Leviathan, you know, that the globe spanning power that ultimately was, you know, its downfall because empires, if they don't get destroyed by warfare, they get destroyed by overstretch, which is, again, something that we have uh, a reflection in our modern times. And and you could say too, to a certain extent,
0: uh, product of you know we, we talked about the idea of of self government and law, and to a certain extent, the imperial system sort of created some of the nationalisms that kind of erupted, especially in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, including in India. Um, you know, we see you know most of the empires of the nineteenth century were, were gone by the mid twentieth. In fact, you could say the only European Empire that actually still existed, which you could say maybe the Soviet Empire, because it had a, a ruling right. totalitarian ideology that it could rule over many nations of many different people through that ideology. Of course, that system ended up uh, being exhausted too. And so, to a certain extent, it's a product of maybe even that kind of Western liberal mentality that produced the idea of, of nationalism. Uh, you know, people sometimes forget about this, that kind of broadened into that, that imperial system that. In many ways, worked for a very long time, uh, but of course, you have these kind of nations that were formed out of that great empire, including modern-day India, which you know owes a lot to its time under, under British rule, under being the British Empire. It's it's interesting, yeah. and I kind of wanted to end end the show because we've we've gone a little bit too long, but I yeah. would like to ask, you know, how does this relate to? modern India is and what's the kind of viewpoint that exists there, especially the kind of the, the kind of ruling kind of populist party that now exists under Modi. You know, how do they view their time under British rule? How do they view the kind of British cultural roots that, that they do that do exist in India?
1: I know, you know, this is the it's the most interesting question because it's a question of prediction of you know uh, and, and future which no historian in their right mind would want to do but uh, it, it is fascinating how even modi's party changed um from how it was in the you know in the early 2000s during the george bush period when they were like you know they were this modern western looking progressive all the call centers and you know business minded people um and and they and they really understood the benefits of uh, of 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 uh, of a of a one nation conservatism as we call it in the West, you know this this idea that you know it's not it's not ethnic nationalism, but it's like civic nationalism, and you kind of like uh, incorporate all the good things that you have from your past, regardless of where you got that from. You know, the very fact that India has all the call centers and, and that you know and all the medical companies and all that kind of stuff is because uh, India per capita is the biggest country that speaks English. Uh, as as if not their first language, their second language, you know, which isn't an advantage for China. It's not an advantage for Philippines or Vietnam or Japan. You know, it's it's for India. You know, the Indian system, even now, the school system in India is probably more British than Britain. You know, they 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 study Kipling, which probably no British kid any you know reads anymore because it's too you know colonial. Um. So, I think I think that's an advantage which Modi's party understood in the early 2000s, but obviously. This new political entity. I. It's. We. You're right. We don't have much time to. You know, go through that. Maybe for some other day. But there's this beautiful letter uh, by a British imperial servant who talked about like how they used to sleep in a cottage outside in Africa and you know everyone loved it because no one you mentioned the Soviet Union the difference between the British and the Soviet Union was exactly as we discussed it was the consent of the governed. you know the Soviets didn't have the consent of the government which was why they were so brutal and they forced the entire of Eastern Europe under their under the thumb the Britain didn't have to do that you know they could uh, a British guy can could sleep hunting somewhere in the in the jungles of East Africa without the fear of being murdered by someone, you know, because they were there were it, it was a it was a society that was brought together by one system of law, and there was this beautiful letter where this guy was leaving Africa during the, in the late nineteen seventies when you know colonialism was getting over throughout the world, and he was writing you know that the sun is setting and I could see from the plane. Uh, And all these British families, they're returning home, never to come back to Africa again. And they could see in the, and they were like happy and they were like, yeah, we're going to go back to London. We're never going to come back to Africa. This part is over. And the sun is setting behind the plane. And he was like, I could see behind, you know, underneath it, a massive landmass. And a very different beast is going to rise up from here, which no one knows how they're going to be. And that was written in the 1970s. And I sometimes read that and think of modern day India and what's happening. And Part of the reason India was divided was because there wasn't a sense of identity and nationality. That the sense of identity of modern India is a British construct. The moment you take it away, it's a different beast. That we have no idea what's going to happen.
0: Yeah, well, this has been very interesting. I actually learned quite a bit from you uh, during this during this podcast. Um, do you have any recommendations for those who want to? Read more on the subject. I know I have some of my own, but book recommendations, as we normally do at the end of our episodes.
1: I think I would advise everyone to read two of my favorite people from that part of the world. One is um, Ramon Roy. Whose statue, by the way, is still in Bristol in the UK. Where, you know, he's one of the most, one of the earliest reformers of India, and without him, the concept of modern India wouldn't exist. Um, and two is again, so <laughs> it kind of, pretty much like covering the entire span. Uh, the the guy who was the last living intellectual of British Empire, uh, Niratsi Chaudhary, who again died in Oxford, um, and his books about. British Empire and what British society was is a fascinating glimpse, and it, it would probably give you a better idea of how the world was reading more more than reading any of the post-colonial garbage.
0: <laughs> well, that's that's all, that all sounds excellent. Um, that sounds like a great read, and uh, this has been an excellent discussion as usual. Um, until next time, uh, join us again on History Reconsidered. Thank you so much, Lautre.
1: Thank you.